Hi, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Today is episode 51, and I'm going to be reviewing The Grateful Dead's newly released Dave's Picks Volume 38. Uh, before we get going, just want to let you know where you can follow the show on social media. Uh, Instagram at rocktalk.dr.cropper, Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, Facebook and LinkedIn, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper, and you can also email me, rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. Feel free to uh, reach out on any of those channels if you have feedback for me, or if you're interested in merchandise, hoodies, and t-shirts. Uh, and yeah, I'll just uh, follow the show if you would like to be kept abreast with all the latest happenings pertaining to it. And i uh, just like to thank you for stopping by. I know alone time is a precious commodity these days, so I appreciate you entrusting me with a bit of yours. So, on with the show then. Dave's Picks Volume 38 is the September 8th, 1973 show at Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. Or Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, excuse me. And the the bonus disc, uh, this is the one this year with the bonus disc, is about an hour when you combine it with the, the few songs that they put within the, the main three discs. There's about an hour and 50 minutes of stuff from the previous night, September 7th, also at Nassau. And these were the first two shows of their fall tour after they spent uh, most of August in the studio recording their Wake of the Flood album. And Wake of the Flood was released October 15th, 73, so about a month after this. And it was their first studio album in about three years, the first one since American Beauty, which came out at the beginning of November 1970. In the interim, they put out two live albums, the... Uh, Skull and Roses in 71 and Europe 72 in 72. So they obviously uh, wanted their first studio album in three years to be a good one. And I think it is, even if it isn't on the, uh, the same level that they had reached with Working Man's Dead and American Beauty in 1970. So anyhow, we're here to talk about Dave's Picks 38, uh, Dave's Picks, the current Grateful Dead archival live release series, and I think the best one in large part due to the cover art, which we'll talk about in a, a bit more depth in a second. So these shows, the first shows of the fall tour, and also Jerry's first shows using his Wolf guitar, which he used for much of the 70s, from fall of 73 up until uh, 79 with a bit of a break in there while it was getting fixed during 77. And this is the fifth Dave's Picks to cover a 1973 show, bringing 73 into a tie with 74 and 77 for Dave's most covered years so far. There have been two from 69, three from 70, three from 71, three from 72, five from 73, five from 74, three from 76, five from 77, four from 78, and then one from each of the following years, 
79, 80, 81, 83, and 84, and two from 87, that's uh, volume 36, the same release, but two complete shows. And none of that is counting the bonus material. That's too much work. <laughs> um, and it seems like a pretty good distribution to me. I could probably do with a bit more 60s myself, uh, but I think focusing on the 70s is good. The coverage of the 80s seems adequate. Um, I mean, you've got a few years in there that haven't been covered. 82 and 85, 86, 88, and 89. In the case of 89, it's had a lot of coverage with uh, non-series releases, uh, a lot of DVD releases of it and stuff, so that's not such a problem. Um, but yeah, I think the, the 80s coverage is adequate. Sprinkle one in once in a while for some variety. Uh, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we get one from the 90s. I haven't done the math for the Dick's Picks or Road Trips series, but the 80s and 90s uh, have a lot of coverage. I would say disproportionately so with non-series official releases, which is understandable because they multi-tracked and filmed a lot of shows in those years. Uh, but I don't think it's representative of their career's trajectory of performance quality. So it's good that Dave shines a light on what I consider to be the golden years uh, most often. It's interesting too that there hadn't been one later than 1983 until last summer with volume 35 having the 84 show. So I said I would talk about the cover art for this one, volume 38. It depicts a weather reporter with their umbrella being blown inside out, uh, standing out in front of Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum with uh, some people scrambling in the wind behind and uh, some swirls up top that look like a uh, quite a storm and a, uh, a van from the news station with the, the little satellite on the top. Uh, with a Grateful Dead sticker on it and uh, their microphone says dead news and then we've got a, a newspaper blown against their arm that says Long Island Press. Um, so obviously, you know, they can get some, some nor'easters and hurricanes and all that in that part of the world on the eastern seaboard. So I haven't, I didn't look up the weather. I don't know if it was a stormy a uh, couple of days when they were there for these shows, but um, one of the cooler looking covers, I think, so far. Uh, and they're all cool, really. Um, that's one of the things that I love about the Dave's Pick series, how the artwork, even though they hire a different artist each year to do all four of them for that year, they all feel cohesive and have a really great aesthetic to them. I think the Dick's Picks artwork for the most part was pretty poor, which uh, is fine, I guess. But with these Dave's Picks ones, it really inspires you to check them out and makes you excited to listen. And I especially love when it's related to the area that they're playing in, uh, similar to the Europe 72 artwork, how it's all specific to the city, but still thematically cohesive. Like some of the Dick's Picks ones, 
even though I know that it's a show that's really good, I look at the cover and I'm like, uh, I don't want to look at that while I listen. Whereas these Dave's Picks ones, it's like, wow, that looks cool. I can't wait to listen to that show. And um, they uh, they put out accompanying merchandise. Uh, they'll do a t-shirt that goes along with it every once in a while, uh, which I got the one for this one. It's a really cool tie dye. Um, it's actually the, uh, the t-shirt depicts the, the scene on the cover of the bonus disc with a, a bird on top of a weather vane out in a cornfield, um, which is some great fall imagery and, uh, a good tie in with the album that they were promoting wake of the flood. Uh, and I got the Miami 74 t-shirt last year. And then this year they've started doing, uh, commemorative glasses with the cover as well, which I've ordered. And those are really cool. So yeah, a plus on the artwork as usual with Dave's picks. And when they announced the release of this one, Dave gave some insight into why he chose it. Apparently this was a longtime favorite show of Dick Latvella, the band's original archivist, uh, the uh, Dave's predecessor, and Dave sort of studied under him for a while and talked about how this one particular time or couple of days, Dick was listening to this show repeatedly and, uh, you know, called Dave over and showed him why he liked it so much and what it showed about what made the band great and what made 73 in his opinion their best year and um talked about how it was a you know on the surface looks like a totally unremarkable set list but the playing was just fantastic and he really loved it and so dave always remembered that and thought it was a cool you know bonding experience with his predecessor and that was part of his reasoning for uh, choosing the show to release for this volume. Speaking of set list, I will tell you that quick and then we'll just get into it with uh, the track by track observations and all of that. So as far as the, the first show, the September 7th, we have in set list order, Bird Song is at the end of disc two of the main part of the release and playing in the band is at the end of disc three. So even non-subscribers will have those two tracks. And then on the bonus disc, here comes sunshine, let it grow, Stella blue trucking drums. The other one jam eyes of the world, sugar magnolia. And then the set list for the main show here, September 8th is Bertha, Me and My Uncle, Sugary, Beat It On Down the Line, Tennessee Jed, Looks Like Rain, Brown Eyed Women, Jack Straw, Roe Jimmy, Weather Report Sweet, Eyes of the World, China Doll, and then the second set is Greatest Story Ever Told, Ramble on Rose, Big River, Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, China Cat Sunflower, I Know You Rider, El Paso, He's Gone, Trucking, not fade away, going down the road feeling bad, not fade away, and then the encores, Stella Blue, and One More Saturday Night. So as you can see, with the show on the 8th, apart from having the first complete weather report suite 
and one of only six versions of Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, the Keith Godcho, the lone Keith Godcho lead vocal track in their catalog, uh, which is on Wake of the Flood. Other than those two, it's pretty much like the most standard 1973 set list you could draw up, uh, which makes it interesting that it stood out so much to Dick just because of the quality of the playing in his estimation, at least let's see if we all agree. Okay. So track by track observations, uh, we will go through the September 7th tracks that are included first, uh, and go through them in their proper set list order, just so that everything is chronological. Um, and as I've done for the past several live grateful dead related episodes, I will give you each song's current ranking on headyversion.com and then uh, discuss my observations. And then, of course, uh, I'll give you the the show's average heady version score at the end, and we can talk about that. So September 7th, the first song from it, which is at the end of disc two in the main release, is Birdsong. This one is currently tied for 34th. Bob does some really cool stuff starting around the seven-minute mark. Some great chemistry between Jerry and Bob around eight minutes. Nice aggressive peak towards the end of the song. Um, It's a great version, very tight, flowing like water and soaring like an eagle, as it should. Uh, But this one has some teeth to it as well, a bit more bite than a lot of bird songs, which is really nice. And Jerry playing it on the wolf uh, certainly contributes contributes to it having more bite. it was only played twice more after this, uh, September 12th in Williamsburg, Virginia, and September 15th in Providence, Rhode Island, before being dropped until the Warfield run in San Fran in September of 1980, September 25th, 1980, as a matter of fact, which is the day that John Bonham passed away, actually. Uh, so that makes this one of only three versions played on Wolf with its amazing tone because, uh, by 1980, Jerry was on Tiger. Um, so that's too bad because I think it sounds really good on Birdsong and as I say, contributes to this one having a bit more teeth to it than some. I think it's kind of crazy that it ended up being played almost 300 times, uh, more than an early live staple like Dark Star but spent most of the 70s on the shelf after its initial 71 to 73 run. It's also crazy to me that 1972 was Birdsong's biggest year with 36 plays, yet it wasn't played once in Europe. But anyhow, this September 7th, 73 version is a very good one. Then we have Playing in the Band at the end of Disc 3. This one is tied for 94th. Donna has a particularly cringeworthy scream during the initial verses. I don't usually rag on her, but this one, um, yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, this version doesn't waste any time blasting off coming out of the verses. Bob does some chord work that I haven't heard him do before, starting around four minutes. Phil and Bill are really locked in and driving hard. Jerry stumbles upon a cool motif around 6 minutes 15 seconds. Great chemistry between he and Bob starting around 11 minutes. 
Things get very interesting around 12 minutes with Phil introducing a new motif. The return to the verse really sneaks up on you on this one. Sometimes you can tell they reach a point where they've had enough or run out of ideas, but this one is very subtle. Overall, it's a very jazzy version, which gets thrown around too loosely sometimes, but it definitely applies here. And it's quite intense the whole way, yet stays very melodic, which is cool. It goes very far out, but stays within the theme. And I haven't heard all 93 versions that are ranked ahead of it, but I scrolled past several that aren't nearly as good, and this seems criminally underrated, tied for 94th. Perhaps that will change now that it's been officially released, though. Then, onto the bonus disc now, we have Here Comes Sunshine. This one is currently tied for 15th. Bob's tone has lots of vibrato. It's kind of underwater sounding and very warm. Jerry has a gorgeous series of licks during his solo just before the four-minute mark, or starting just before the four-minute mark, which Bob starts building off of. The whole thing starts to bubble into a mellow frenzy, a gorgeous make-your-toes-curl-up type of peak, and then suddenly gets very heavy at six minutes, courtesy of Jerry and Bill. Keith sounds great on the roads through here, Another gorgeous theme from Jerry during one of his solos around the 9.30 mark. And then Bob does some amazing stuff around 10 minutes. And this version of Here Comes Sunshine uh, somehow manages to be completely mellow and groovy and completely ferocious at the same time. Uh, Really impressive, excellent version. Then we have Let It Grow. This one is currently tied for 25th and is the first ever version of it. Bob almost overdoes the vocals in my opinion. Uh, The first jam section is very smooth and bubbly. Jerry goes off on a crazy run coming out of the chorus around 6.30. It wanders into some mellow ethereal territory at eight minutes. Jerry then starts to go off again around nine minutes, but it stays a bit mellower underneath him and Phil goes off a bit high on the neck and sounds like he might go into a solo around 11 minutes, but they instead slip seamlessly into Stella Blue, and he lets off one last blistering run over the transition. Stella Blue is currently tied for 41st. It's nice to hear it at a respectable tempo after the last one I heard, the interminable May 18th, 77 version from Atlanta. Uh, This September 7th, 73 one has really excellent dynamics. Soft as a whisper one moment, quite powerful the next. The Blue Light Cheap Hotel bridge hits very hard on this version. Uh, And this one is very well sung by Jerry and just tight, tight, tight overall. Bill does some cool embellishments from 520 to 540 or so, and this one has a really nice outro jam. As someone who's never particularly cared for this song, I must say I'm impressed with this version and would come back and listen to it on its own. Seems like it's probably underrated at 41st place, but I'm not enough of a Stella Blue expert to comment on that. Truckin' is currently tied for 60th, The pace is good through the verses, 
Keith really shines throughout the verses. Uh, they're not the most aggressive I've heard as far as Jerry's lead licks and such, but the vocals are good and there aren't any lyrical flubs. Jerry plays an awesome phrase around 545 and turns in a decently hot first solo. Keith switches to a great organ sound around eight minutes, and Bob starts to suggest the other one just before 930. Jerry and Phil join in the other one teases around 10 minutes, and then Billy becomes more insistent with the snare and pushes the others aside for a brief drums. Uh, this drums was not listed i had to nominate it uh it's very technically sound it almost sounds like he's doing a rudiment exercise for much of it which is fine by me and then it flows into the other one jam because they never uh play either of the verses uh this one there's no separate listing for the other one jam so it's just listed as the other one and uh, not surprising with it not having any vocals or anything and it not being too long. It's currently tied for 140th. Jerry and Phil are really locked in with each other and firing on all cylinders. Phil hits on a cool riff at 310, quickly mutates it, then abandons it in favor of wandering further. Some great intense, the other one thematic jamming for, for about three minutes thereafter. It dies down around six minutes, and Phil offers some nice bombs during the wind down into Eyes of the World. This version of Eyes of the World is currently tied for 30th. It's very fast and energetic. The verses are tight. The break between the second and third verses is particularly hot. Phil really goes off just after eight minutes, and again after 10 minutes. Jerry gets very intense starting around 10.30. And I would say this is more intense and driving than just about any eyes that I've heard by the 11 minute mark. It starts to peak spectacularly around 1130. And then Keith gets his turn to shine around 1230, really pounding away. I love him on the roads for this compared to uh, the piano sounds that he would have a little bit later in the 70s. Uh, he was playing a Fender Rhodes a lot in 73 and 74. And they do an awesome variation of the outro jam that's unique to these earlier 73, 74 versions, uh, starting around the 1330 mark. And then Billy unleashes some great fills around 1530, and then Phil goes off. Keith is adding a lot to the madness around 1630, Great spiraling interplay between he, Bob, and Phil. Jerry plays a face-melting two-note motif around 17 minutes, and they just keep digging deeper and deeper into it. They hit on a really cool riff around 18 minutes, which they ride for about 45 seconds before winding it down until Bob leads them into Sugar Magnolia, and this Eyes of the World clocks in at 19 minutes. Uh, it's incredibly flowing and inspired, but also heavier than most versions of Eyes of the World. This one has some bite to it, and uh, I think it might be underrated being tied for 30th. It's one of the best I've heard. Then the bonus disc wraps up with Sugar Magnolia. This one is currently tied for 58th. It sounds like it could be on the Doors' L.A. Woman album with Keith playing the Fender Rhodes. 
good opening verses, very banjo-like solo from Jerry, great stuff from both he and Keith around 545, just about at the climax of the solo, and some very interesting spacious playing from Jerry during the Sunshine Daydream section, and Bob channels his inner uh, running bear for a bit during Sunshine Daydream as well. A fun, unique version of Sugar Mags to wrap up the bonus disc. So some great stuff on the bonus disc that really had me excited for the main release with the show the following night on September 8th. So let's move right along to that. Kicks off with Bertha. This one's currently tied for 115th. Phil really shines at the beginning, especially. There's a nice bounce to this one. Sounds like they're having fun and happy to be there. Keith is very creative on this one. Jerry's solo isn't his most shredding, but great phrasing and emotion. Not the absolute best Bertha, but a great energetic opener nonetheless. It has that late summer uh, beach kind of vibe, I think. Uh, like they were a bit further out on Long Island in the Hamptons, opening up a Labor Day weekend show or something. And that was the vibe I was getting. Then Me and My Uncle, this one's currently tied for 96th. A great solo from Jerry, nice chemistry between Bob and Bill during it. Cool riffing from Jerry during the final verse, and a great howl from Wolf on the final notes. The degree of separation between each version of Me and My Uncle is so minuscule that uh, telling you what it ranks is almost meaningless unless it's one that's right up at the top, uh, but this is definitely a good one. Then third song is Sugary. This one's currently tied for 85th. Has a good pulse to it. Bill and Keith are both on fire. Jerry digs deep with a great loud howl from Wolf at 630. And he embellishes the last line uh, on the vocal side of things uh, really nicely. A uh, very good version of Sugary. Then we have Beat It On Down the Line. This one's currently tied for 31st. Bob's rhythm work is excellent on this one. The SG sounds great. Uh, one of the pictures on the inside of the the CD has Bob playing a Gibson SG, so I assume that's what he was playing for the entirety of these shows. Um, yeah, I think it sounds great and is a bit more direct than the Gibson ES-335, uh, the hollow body that he was playing in 72. Uh, Keith turns in a great solo on this one and some great licks in the latter half of the song, and Jerry is active and interesting throughout. Then we have Tennessee Jed. This one's currently tied for 39th. I love what Bob's doing during the verses on this one, and Jerry's vocal delivery is really impassioned. Keith is excellent on this one, too. A really cool entrance to the closing jam by Jerry around the six-minute mark. Uh, one of the coolest and best closing jams that I've heard in a Jed. It achieves that levitation stage very quickly with Jerry doing very unique and tasty things and Keith, Phil, and Bob locked into an incredibly bubbly, lysergic groove and the crowd notices too. You can hear the applause as they exit to wrap it up with the final vocals. And Bill, of course, drives the whole thing along like the evening train with his persistent bass drum. 
looks like rain is currently tied for 66th. Uh, some really beautiful lead licks from Jerry during the verses. Gorgeous, perfectly phrased slide solo from him and nice fills from Keith coming out of Jerry's solo as well. Billy and Phil keep it driving with great subtlety. The right dynamic ebbs and flows at just the right times, never drags. Gorgeous vocals from Bob and excellent rhythm playing for that matter. He really digs in and plays forcefully towards the end and some stunning lead licks from Jerry on the outro. Um, I'm always going to be partial to the Europe 72 versions of it with Jerry on the pedal steel, but for a non-pedal steel version, this is about as good as I've heard. Brown-Eyed Women is currently tied for 62nd. It's quite laid back, but that fits the trajectory of the set at this point. Some nice aggressive bass drum work from Billy around the 4.30 mark. It more or less glides along in that seemingly effortless 73 way. I think it's unacceptable that this one ranks beneath the Williamsburg 78 version from Dave's Picks 37, which we talked about in February, because uh, the Rhythm Devils completely butcher that one. Anyhow, next up is Jack Straw. This one's currently tied for 82nd. It's quite a jolt of energy after the laid-back version of Brown-Eyed Women. Very nice harmonies, and it really starts to peak around three and a half minutes. It's a very wired, yet buttery smooth version. I've grown to love the post-hiatus versions of Jack Straw as well with their shredding goodness, but very few of them navigate the dynamic swells with the same nuance as these ones that only have Bill on them. Then we have Roe Jimmy, currently tied for 78th. This one has uh, some great locked-in stop-start action in the first verse. Great harmonies. Donna sounds very nice. It has a bit more thump than most of them. It maintains a hopeful bounce, even though it's a very melancholic song especially in the last minute and a half, they start to bubble over a little too much and Billy grinds them back into phase and a strong ending to this one as well. Then we have the first complete performance of Weather Report Sweet following the first uh, Let It Grow the night before. This Weather Report Sweet is currently tied for 27th. It's stunningly beautiful the first few minutes, especially the blow-away harmonies just before three minutes. Jerry plays a Beatlesque phrase just after that. Uh, I'm thinking it's Don't Let Me Down that it reminded me of. It feels like you're floating on a cloud or on a giant leaf down a mountainside into a lush forest. Billy has an awesome fill at 545 just before they flip the switch into the let it grow section. Phil takes over just when you need him to at listen to the thunder around eight minutes. Uh, nice symbol work from Billy just after that. Uh, Jerry takes off like a rocket at 10 minutes with some really fast runs, then settles into a nice groove with some bends leading into those unison riffs that suspend the action briefly before launching back into the chorus. Bill and Phil start having some fun after that chorus around the 12 minute mark. Jerry has some great soloing after that. Bob's chord work is fantastic from around 1245 onward. 
There's a nice powerful ending just after 14 minutes, like slamming on the brakes in the mud. Um, and then they have a brief beer barrel polka tease thereafter. A great version of Weather Report Suite and uh, really clean for a first attempt. You can tell that they were fresh out of the studio recording it. Then we have Eyes of the World. This one is currently tied for 69th. It has a deeper and heavier pocket than usual, courtesy of Billy and Phil. The instrumental breaks before the one after the third verse are all fairly short. The playing is good, it just doesn't get a chance to stretch out too much. The break after the third verse is excellent, especially from Bobby and Phil. Phil plays a really menacing groove for a bit between 10.30 and 11. The outro jam is nice, and Keith really starts to shine on the roads around 12.30. Apparently Jerry broke a string, according to uh, one of the commenters on headyversion.com. Bob really takes advantage of the chance to fill the gap as well and turns in some nice stuff. It starts to build to a, a good kind of murky peak at 14.20 once Jerry is back, and it's very cool the way it crashes down into China Doll especially Phil doing some crazy distorted bombs like he would do uh, during a tiger section. China Doll is currently tied for 22nd. It's tight, pretty, and to the point. Doesn't drag on too long. Phil keeps it nice and grounded, and Jerry really turns in a nice vocal performance. One of the better versions of the song that I've heard as someone who's not a huge fan of it, or at least hasn't been Previously, it's starting to grow on me, a very similar pattern to my opinion of Stella Blue. And then the second set kicks off with Greatest Story Ever Told. This one's currently tied for 45th. Wolf sounds amazing on this. This version has that 73 magic going where it's very intense and very chill at the same time. Great chemistry between Phil, Keith, and Bob. And then Ramble on Rose was not listed. I had to nominate it. Jerry and Bob are especially fantastic on this one. Jerry's solo and Bob during the verses after the solo. Bill and Phil drive it forward nicely as well. It's one that can sometimes drag a bit, but this one uh, keeps a good steady thump going. Big River is currently tied for 75th. Bob's rhythm work is excellent. Very hot version with a ripping solo from Jerry, and probably about as fast as I've heard them play it. And then we have probably the biggest treat of the night set list wise, even though Weather Report Suite is a debut, they played it a decent number of times. But Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, also off of the Wake of the Flood album, this was the first of only six times that it was played. Uh, this version is currently ranked second of the six on heady version. Um, I think it sounds great. Nice, fun, sing-along type tune, and Keith does a great job with the vocals as far as I'm concerned. And then we have China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider. This version of the classic pairing is currently tied for 107th, but there's a lot of competition for this one. The China Cat portion here is interesting. It's very staccato and fill-driven. There's a loud hum of feedback that interrupts their momentum briefly during Jerry's solo, 
Bob really shines during the first part of the transition. And then there's a fantastic feeling groovy jam during the latter half of the transition. And then once we're into, I know you rider, Bill keeps it charging along at a terrific gallop and it's pretty good vocally. Jerry's soloing is like liquid lightning and it's a very good version of the, I know you rider half of the equation at the very least. I think the China cat's just fine and is interesting, but I, I read some dissenting opinions to that effect, um, on Hedy. El Paso was not nominated or was not listed. I had to nominate it. Instrumentally, it's very good, but Bob has a slight lyrical flub somewhat early on and his voice gives out on him a bit in a few spots. And then kicking off the jam suite, we have He's Gone. This one is currently tied for 31st. And this show was actually on Pigpen's birthday, the first, uh, his, his first birthday after he passed away. Uh, he, he died in March of 73. So um, He's Gone must have definitely carried extra weight for them on on that night and also i just uh got news that kevin clark the actor who played the drummer in school of rock was uh killed riding his bicycle yesterday in chicago uh hit by a car so uh rest in peace to him and uh prayers to his family will dedicate this he's gone to him as well Apparently he had just formed a band and played their first show on Saturday and was uh, finally living the life he wanted to and actually wanted to be a rock star was more than just a movie role. So uh, yeah, to Pigpen and to Kevin Clark. So anyhow, this He's Gone tied for 31st. Keith's playing is really pretty on this one. I quite like Bob's contributions as well. And 73 was a great year for He's Gone overall, perhaps the best. Maybe they had Big Ben in mind playing it all year. Probably. The June 10th one from RFK Stadium is the one that changed my opinion of the song. I used to like it but not love it, and then I heard that version and was really wowed. This He's Gone is certainly good, but doesn't stand out above the rest until just after the 11-minute mark when it flips from the ooh, nothing's gonna bring him back outro into a beautiful outro jam. Jerry's playing on this jam is really sublime, almost taking on a birdsong type feel. In fact, the whole jam has a bit of that flavor, and they just sort of decide they've had enough and flip the switch into trucking. This version of Truckin' is currently tied for 60th, um, just like the one from the night before that's on the bonus disc. Uh, but this one I don't think is quite as good because of the vocals. Bob has more than a few kind of warbly moments. The harmonies are pretty ragged as well compared to some of the better ones. Phil does a crazy little dive-bombing run just before the four-minute mark. The jams in the latter half of the song are great, though. Not scorching like they usually are, a bit more of a mellow groove, but equally enjoyable. Bob especially is on fire, unique and adventurous rhythm playing. 
Jerry doesn't let loose with the faster runs as much as he does on other versions, but his phrasing is top notch and overall the chemistry is really good. Phil starts to suggest Sugar Magnolia over Billy's Rolling Toms as it winds to a close, but they opt for Not Fade Away instead. This Not Fade Away is currently tied for 75th. Billy plays a cool, jazzy variation of the groove during the jam. Jerry's really on fire now, full of great ideas and executing them well, and just sounds like he's having a lot of fun on his new axe, The Wolf. It's one of the better not fade aways I've heard in a while. I always like it to some degree because it's just a great song and a great groove to jam to, but some click and find that next level better than others and consequently jump out at you. And this is one of those. The transition into going down the road feeling bad is interesting on this one. It kind of comes to a stop and then Jerry starts to reprise the not fade away riff as if to bring it back around to the closing vocals and wrap it up and then changes his mind and starts going down the road feeling bad this going down the road feeling bad is currently tied for 66th uh, a similar commentary applies to it as does to not fade away as far as being one that's always enjoyable to some extent but this version standing out compared to most Jerry has some really nice leads. Keith has great chemistry with him. Bob is tearing it up yet again. And it's a strong version from Phil, especially near the end. And a particularly pretty, ethereal, we bid you good night tease at the end, which they usually did at the end of going down the road feeling bad. And then they bring it back around to the not fade away climax, which is good. And then for the encores, they kick it off with Stella Blue. This one's currently tied for 98th. Apparently it's one of only two times that it was played as an encore, so that's cool. Uh, since I've just started coming around to this song recently, I'm nowhere near enough of an expert on it yet to comment too much on how this one compares to others, but it sounds very nice to me and is one of the better ones that I've heard, I would say. Um, probably a bit underrated at 98th, I would guess, and I'm sure that'll change a bit now that it's been officially released. And it flows pretty well straight into One More Saturday Night, which was not listed. I had to nominate it. Billy really is the star of this one, uh, doing some extremely cool snare and hi-hat work throughout the song. Um, and Phil does some neat stuff just after the two-minute mark as well. Um, not the absolute tightest or most explosive version. I'm adamant that One More Saturday Night peaked on the Europe 72 tour, uh, but a fun and unique version nonetheless, thanks to Bill, and definitely worth a listen, if only for him. Okay, so as far as general observations about these two shows, uh, excellent playing both nights. I mean, what do you expect? It's 73. They're clearly tight after spending the latter half of the summer in the studio making Wake of the Flood and are excited to play the new material from it, even though a lot of it had debuted earlier in the year. Uh, Jerry is clearly enjoying his new toy, Wolf, as well. I would say that overall, these two shows sound like the opening nights of a tour, energetic and excited, 
a bit rough around the edges in a few spots, but enthusiasm carries the day. So let's talk about placing these shows in their live career as a whole, and then we can get into a more interesting discussion out of that. So the 10 songs from the September 7th show that are included have an average rank of 59.7 on headyversion.com, and the September 8th show has an average rank of 69.73. These seem like low scores compared to the scores of the past few Dave's picks that I've done reviews for, uh, in that they're in the same range, because September 73 is definitely uh, better than the mid-80s as far as I'm concerned, even though I like the 80s and I'm gaining an unincreasing appreciation for them. Um, but I would say that these scores are accurate in terms of the range that I would rank them in as complete shows if I was, you know, making a list of my top 100 dead shows. Um, I don't know if there's a full 10 point disparity between the two of them, but I did actually enjoy the songs from the first night a bit better. Part of that is song selection wise. Um, but I think on the ones that were played both nights, like eyes of the world, they're both great, but the one on the seventh is better. Um, now I did only listen to all of this once because this is such a hectic stretch of the schedule. So I'm sure repeated listens might change my opinions a bit. And I actually do think that would be a fun challenge to rank my top 100 dead shows at some point. It would be a huge challenge. I'd have to do it coming off of a few weeks off. Uh, and I don't want to do it yet when I'm still fairly unfamiliar with many years of their career. I want it to be comprehensive and as accurate as I can do within my personal opinion. Uh, when I just finally decide to do it. I'm sure both of these show's scores will get a bump now that they are officially released. Now, as far as the numbers, they're also both fighting against unique factors. In the case of September 7th, the ones included here are almost all what I would call heavy hitters in terms of being big set list centerpieces that people love to dissect. And there are lots of versions with a ton of votes like eyes of the world playing in the band. Those are some of the most voted on songs on there, right up there with dark star and, uh, the scarlet fire combo. And then in the case of September 8th, it's almost the complete opposite its defining feature is it's almost completely unremarkable set list, weather report suite and let me sing your blues away notwithstanding. Instead, it's filled with ones like Tennessee Jed and beat it on down the line that were played often for decades, yet aren't very distinguishable from one version to the next. So you have well over a hundred versions log jammed in the, you know, three to 10 votes range just goes to show that having a few uncommonly played songs can really help a show's average score. And no doubt having these number two ranked, let me sing your blues away gave September 8th a, a bit of a boost as it is. Cause it had lots of versions that ranked really low uh, to my surprise. 
one other problem with the rankings besides just regular bias that I'm not sure if I've mentioned on here is I seem to see a pattern with songs that were played in the earlier years and right through the 80s and 90s that the 80s and 90s versions perform better than you would expect them to votes wise and I and others suspect that's due to uh, people voting on versions from shows or at least years that they saw themselves and uh, there would be more fans who saw them in the 80s and 90s uh, not only still alive but uh, more not to discriminate by age but perhaps more likely to be computer savvy and actively contributing contributing to a website like that and your memory is likely to be fresher about a show that you saw 25 years ago as opposed to 50 years ago so enough of the numbers how would i compare these shows to other stuff that i've heard from 73 and to other years um it's not they aren't my favorite shows that i've heard from 1973 i like them i think they're good uh but i like the ucla show from november 17th better i like the the june 9th and 10th rfk stadium shows better i think certainly the 10th um and then from the Pacific Northwest box set that I have, Vancouver, Portland, Seattle in June, I for sure like Vancouver better. The others, um, I'll have to see when I listen to them for their anniversaries in a month. Uh, and it's not just the set list, although I think that does have to be considered. I don't really agree with uh, our dear old friend Dick, the original archivist, who uh, sang the show's praises very heavily. Um, it's certainly a good show, and there's some great playing, but I think the set list does matter. Uh, there are instances, uh, there's a very similar example in the Led Zeppelin world, the last show of their June 72 North American tour, June 28th in Tucson, Arizona, has basically the most standard set list of the tour uh, in that the acoustic set is cut to just Ron Rar Stomp. They, they do play Over the Hills and Far Away, but they don't play Dancing Days, which they had introduced to the set list uh, a week or two earlier. Not a week or two, like nine days earlier, anyhow. Um, they don't play the ocean or any extra encores, just rock and roll. The only set list plus it has is uh, having Elvis's Stuck on You in the Whole Lot of Love medley, which is huge. And you could compare that to this show having Let Me Sing Your Blues Away. Um, so, yeah, that show has literally the most basic set list you could get from that tour. And yet, like pound for pound, if you will just comparing the quality of the playing on all of the standard songs, it clearly differentiates itself from the other shows, even the other epic ones that 
do ultimately rank ahead of it because of superior set list and vibes like Seattle and Los Angeles, uh, and even maybe New York, but anyhow, um, so that's a case where a show overcomes a completely standard set list because the playing does clearly differentiate itself from the shows surrounding it. I just don't find that to be the case with this September 8th, 73 show. The playing's good for sure, but I've heard at least a handful of other 73 shows and I have a lot more digging to do in 73 um, that are at least as good, if not better from a playing quality standpoint. So I'm not really sure where uh, Dick Letvella was coming from with that. I've read uh, in some other threads uh, about his, uh, you know, he posted a long thing of notes going through 1973 on archive. And I was reading that thread um, a few weeks ago. And one of the people commented uh, years later and said, you know, love Dick and everything that he meant for the band. But I find that I only agree with him about 50% of the time. And I would have to say that I agree with that guy in that I only find myself agreeing with Dick's assessments about 50% of the time, which is fine. And we have to remember that through as much as we like to dissect this stuff and metricize it and objectify it as much as we can, it still is a very subjective thing, right? Um, one other thing why I I like the Dave's Picks series better, something that frustrates me with Dick's Picks is how uh, he seemed to like to mix in like half of two shows instead of one complete show. Uh, Dick's Picks 4, for example, uh, which has part of the February 13th and part of the February 14th, 1970 shows. Those two are both amazing. Just put both of them out in full. Anyhow, I don't want to rag on Dick, but I disagree that this September 8th show clearly separates itself from the shows surrounding it within its own year from a pure uh, playing quality perspective. Uh, which then opens the door for criticism of its very standard set list. Um, I mean, the first eight songs, you could be looking at a Europe 72 set list, which I don't consider to be an asset because you're, it's not, it doesn't have the same polish and shine and sparkle, if you will, at least to my ears, of those songs being played on Europe 72. And I realize part of that's the sound quality, multi-track versus uh, officially mastered soundboard. But yeah, I mean, after that, it starts to diverge fairly considerably with Roe Jimmy, Weather Report, Sweet Eyes of the World, and so on. But I think you know what I'm saying. So yeah, at first blush, average compared to the other shows that I've heard from 1973, 
as far as compared to other years, I think 73 has a very unique feel to it. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, you know, it gets nicknamed the mellow jazz year. And I certainly hear that, but that's a bit deceiving because it's still very intense. It just has this really magical way of being kind of sneakily intense where it is very laid back and groovy sounding and very intense simultaneously, which uh, is very difficult to do or even conceptualize or describe how they did it. Uh, but it makes 73 really fun to listen to and uh, it helps the music to breathe well and makes it um, harder to get fatigued or burnt out listening to 73, I think. Um, you know, Europe 72 is my favorite tour era because of the crossover with Pigpen and stuff, but you can't, by the end of the tour with it, and I haven't tried listening to that many 73 shows in a row, so I, if I did, I might find that it would hold true for that as well. But, um, and this certainly applies to 77, which I've been working through. Um, there can get to be a bit of, uh, sameness by the time you get towards the end of the tour. And part of that's because those two had some of the least diverse set lists. But, um, in the case of, you know, comparing this to, to Europe 72, it's in 72, and Europe in particular, it feels very obviously intense and direct, and it, which is part of what makes it great, but uh, it also can tire you out quicker because it's an intense, you know, focused, it's, this is clearly smacking me in the face sort of listening experience, whereas 73 has a bit more of a... Uh, deceivingly unassuming intensity to it. And then 74 to my ears kind of uh, has the best of both between those two. It mixes back in some directness, but keeps the the mellow jazziness of uh, 73. So basically, yes, it's an, a good, not average, it's a good, not extremely top tier 73 show but take that with a grain of salt because it's taking place smack dab in the middle of what i consider to be the peak of their career 72 to 74 so you know a merely good show from that stretch is going to beat a great show from other years uh, in many cases so ultimately, I think it comes down to expectations. I think mine might have been set a bit too high for this show with all the the hype with the uh, the way that Dave described and, ex and explained his rationale for choosing it um, when it was announced, you know, with it being cited as the prime example of how playing quality can render the set list completely irrelevant essentially and 
I didn't find that, and I don't think you will either, so my suggestion would be not to look for that, forget they said that, and just take it for what it is. Okay, I'm going to be listening to this 73 show that has one of the most basic set lists you could have in 73, but it's still 73, so I know it's still going to be good, and there will be some stuff in here that will pleasantly surprise me, and it has the historical significance of being the first two shows after they recorded Wake of the Flood and the debut of Weather Report Suite and one of only six Let Me Sing Your Blues Away and the debut of Jerry's Wolf Guitar. So certainly a worthy addiction, addition to our collective collections, and I know I will continue to enjoy it, and I look forward to giving it a few more chances. If I had to single out one highlight from the whole shebang, it would be Eyes of the World from the September 7th show on the bonus disc. I would say that was probably the one instance where I thought, oh, okay, maybe maybe Dick was right. Maybe the playing level really is just that much better on these shows. And I think with that, we will call it a day before I stray too far into the weeds. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so that you can be kept abreast of the latest happenings pertaining to the show. You can find the show on Instagram at rocktalk.dr.cropper, on Twitter at rocktalkdrcrop with two Ps, on Facebook and LinkedIn, rocktalk with Dr. Cropper, and you can also email me rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com. Besides following, I encourage you to reach out on any of those platforms if you have feedback for me, topics you'd like me to cover. Also, if you're interested in merchandise, that would be your way to go about uh, getting some. We've got white t-shirts for $40 Canadian or two for 70 and both white and black hoodies for uh, $80 Canadian. So let me know if you're interested in some merchandise. Also, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review with the streaming platform that you use, those are very helpful to me as a content creator. And lastly, Apple and Spotify are both introducing premium subscriptions, which I'm going to be introducing at some point in the near future. And uh, I'm working on some exciting benefits that will be available to those of you who choose to go that route. Either way, thank you all so much for listening. If you're new to the show, welcome. I hope you liked what you heard. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for your loyalty. There will be another episode tomorrow, uh, Spencer and I talking about Marvin Gaye's What's Going On album for its 50th anniversary. And then next week, we will be ranking the Europe 72 versions of the other one with Spencer and my friend Jeremy Shaw. And then the week after, we'll be ranking the Europe 72 versions of Dark Star. Okay, so I'm looking forward to all of those, and I hope you are as well. Uh, take care in the meantime, enjoy the increasingly nice weather, and I will see you soon. Class dismissed.